0: I'll be reading from uh, John chapter 8, 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again at the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus strained up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now, leave your life of sin. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Manuel. Appreciate that reading. We all need to to continue to uh pray. Say, thank you to God for the gift of the Chicones. If you're not aware, today is the twins' birthday. Katia and Cavani are are three years old. Can you imagine that three years has gone by already? I want you to jump on the Wayback Machine with me. How many of you remember typing class? Do we have any typing class people here? Uh, I, I recognize that I'm of the privileged generation. I took typing class on an IBM Selectric. I happen to know that some of you took a typing class on a manual, whack, whack, whack typewriter. I worked with a preacher, uh, Joe Baesden, who many of you have met before. He preached here one Sunday before he passed away, about uh, six years ago now. Um, but uh, he, he grew up, in, and that's where he learned. And then he just kept that kind of pressure on keyboards. Uh, I happened to be uh, at the office when I came to Belton in 1991 and I got him his first personal computer to work on and, and I'm an Apple guy, whatever you want to say about that. I was an Apple guy before Apple being Apple was cool is all I have to say. Um, I was an Apple guy and so I, I knew the easiest computer that I could teach him how to use was going to be, and we're talking now about the little green square that had the monochrome screen put into it. And probably the cheapest keyboard that Apple could have produced anywhere in the world. And he went to work on that thing like he was on his old manual Remington typewriter. He broke three keyboards in the first year. (laughs) But he knew how to type, baby. He knew how to type. And typing class was, uh, you know, again, as I look back on high school, you know, what do you take with you from those kinds of things? Baby, every single day. It, it, for those of us who learned actually how to type before we learned how to do thumb typing on our phones, it's, it's, uh, I think that's why it's harder for me to do thumb typing because my fingers want to type things out. Occasionally today you'll still see people doing hunt and peck, but it's, it's almost been completely eliminated from our society by the educational process. Isn't that amazing? The things that education brings to us. As opposed to the hunt and peck, almost nobody does that anymore. my typing class was a very regimented thing we would put on the record and you needed to type at the pace of the record I don't know if anybody remembers that kind of thing Uh, but I had no idea and I never really thought about it but I did find this picture imagining what typing class would look like in a catholic school (laughs) typing teachers were typically some of the most rigid enforce the rules kind of people there's a reason for that they, there was not, there was no creativity in learning how to be type. Right? It was simply you needed to do it exactly this way. This finger went here, that finger went there. There was no complication to it whatsoever. But I can only imagine what it was like at a Catholic school. I think our teacher would put, uh, uh, she would cover up put a piece of paper over the keyboard that we had to type on, but I never had a blindfold put on me to try. For those of you who don't know what this concept is, is the idea you don't look at your hands. You, you, you simply type according to the rhythm of your fingers, and you, you trust that is the case. In addition to learning where the keys on a typewriter are, There was, in my typing class, and for many of you, again, I understand that this is not the new generation, so again, I'm still on the way back machine. The new generation can write a letter however they want to write a letter, amen? (laughs) They can create a business form however they want to create a business form, but in my typing class, I learned that you started a letter with the date across the top, two spaces, and then a from, right? And then two spaces, and then a to. And then you might put a uh, deer such and such, but likely you were going to put to whom it may concern. If it was a formal letter, if it was an informal letter, always started with dear, But there was a very regimented way that you did those things, and that's how they taught us. That's why, by the way, typing teachers were pretty, you know, they, they liked the rules and they. You needed to follow the rules, and their creativity didn't count in typing class. Your English teacher may have counted for creativity. Your art teacher loved your creativity. Your math teacher and your typing teacher did not like your creativity. The New Testament writers followed the form of their day very, very well. I encourage you to do a quick search of grace to you in a, in a concordance somewhere. And what you'll discover is, is that every New Testament letter, except for Hebrews and Jude, and if, if Revelation is a letter, then Revelation... All start with some form, if not the first line, it's in the first couple of verses, typically. There may be a longer set of greeting, but we will always come down to this form. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians is the exception in that it says, grace to you. It's a shorter version. We've talked about First Thessalonians maybe being the first letter that Paul ever wrote. But by the time Paul got started writing letters, he had discovered this form. And it reflected, new, it reflected the, the times that he lived in. It reflected the current understanding in Roman culture of how you wrote a letter to somebody. Except for Paul, there was more. It wasn't just the idea of saying grace to you in the sense of hello to you. But Paul knew that the people he, were, he was writing to understood grace in a much bigger way. And it is that extension of grace. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. And again, Paul leans heavily here into his own Jewish background where the greeting of the day is shalom or peace to you. And peace from God being a powerful sort of thing. Again, he took the form of his day and gave it meaning. Made sure that people heard more than just hello, he wanted to remind them from the very beginning of the letter that you are a people who have grace, or as the misspelling that has been checked multiple times this week by anybody who had to replicate it, you have been graced. As we hear the words of scripture, are they just comments on history? Or, again, do they speak to us? Is the word speaking to me, and is it speaking to you? And again, this summer we are talking about particularly these prayers, prayers from the New Testament for the church. And when we hear these prayers, when we hear these words, when we hear the word grace to you, does it change who we are and how we think about ourselves and how we understand our relationship to God? In Colossians, at the end of the letter, just as he began with grace to you and peace from our Father, he ends it with grace be with you. This is not repeated as commonly. This is the closing prayer. And again, it forms follows form to a certain extent. When you ended the letter, you wanted to say, and again, in class, in teaching class, Yours sincerely, or something akin to that. For Paul, he knew he needed to end it with some sort of affirmation. But if you read the end of Paul's letters, he's always closing with a prayer. Sometimes it's a prayer, and each time there are elements of the prayer that he asks for them to be praying for him. But he always expresses a prayer for them as well. Grace be with you. In what ways... Does this prayer impact me? In what ways does this impact you and all of us? It gets expanded in other contexts. In concluding prayers, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you in Romans. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love in Ephesians. And grace be with all of you in Titus. Which kind of gives us an interesting, if we just think about it, we see Titus as written to an individual and yet it seems to be written to a group. Grace be to all of you. We see the power of grace played out throughout scripture. Amen? From just within the first few pages. Yes, they take the apple. Yes, they take the fruit. And they eat of it. And they say, we'll determine what right and wrong is. We'll determine what the knowledge of good and evil is. We won't depend on God for that. And God has to cast them out of the garden. And yet he does not leave them alone. He provides for them in a very powerful sort of way. And he continues to be with them. He comes to them in the form of the patriarchs. Abraham, he comes to them in the form of the law. Because grace is always got what God's going to be about. Most powerfully expressed as Jesus. The ultimate expression of the fact that God, even though man chose to live his own way, God was not going to leave them alone. It's not that we got good enough for Jesus to come. Instead, it was that God chose to send Jesus through his grace. We see the power of of grace throughout scripture, but I want to point you to our passage that Manuel did such a beautiful job of reading, in John chapter 8. Again, a woman in complete vulnerability, a woman who could be snatched away, caught in adultery as they say, and, and the woman being dragged in front of men, the man was left alone. He, she is the one who is thrown in front of Jesus. And she is the one who is accused. And by the way, accused accurately. The law says we should stone one like this. And it's not that that's not truth. It's just it's truth without God. And Jesus pushes through this this sense of, of legal binding law. The idea that there is only one way to see someone. And that is that they are condemned. The problem with seeing people that way is that all we have to do is just dig a little further. Typically, we condemn people of sins that they have problems with and deny that we, too, have our own set of sins to deal with. And so it was these men who threw her out there in front of Jesus and said, Don't you want to condemn her? And Jesus said, would not those powerful words? If you don't have sin, if you want to condemn her... And you can condemn her if you can convince me that you don't also. And again, there is some level of interpretation of this passage that says, maybe not just sin, but this sin. And they begin to drop their rocks. And they begin to move away. The woman caught in adultery was graced. Grace came in the form of Jesus when she was thrown in front of him. Jesus speaks into her her vulnerability and her need. And she has received, because she encountered Jesus, grace. It is not just that grace is something in the past, but it is something that's very powerfully fulfilled. When Jesus rose from the tomb and when Jesus allowed the disciples to begin to proclaim that his death and burial and resurrection could be applied to everyone who would respond to him in faith. That they too would be raised to new life. That they would come out of those waters of baptisms in the same way that Jesus came out of that tomb. And they could live under God's grace. It was accomplished back then. And so we have it has been fulfilled in many ways. And when we respond to Jesus, it becomes part of who we are. And so we are graced. And yet, isn't it true that so often, so often, we live these lives of saying, oh, I'm not sure I'm good enough. And by the way, the answer to that question is always, no, not good enough. We seldom remember that the grace that has come to us is not about what we do, but about what God has done for us through Jesus. And this woman, and, and if you read your text closely, and you'll see that there'll be some sort of marking in your Bible that says, we can't find this in the original sets of text for the Gospel of John. What's interesting is, is that when it got included, the people who allowed it to be included knew the story of Jesus much better than we do. Amen? And it doesn't seem to be a false story about Jesus. It just doesn't seem to be a story that John included on the first round. It's interesting how there's context given to it. Where was he? What was he doing? And again, whether we tell this story about the way people are graced or a hundred others, it is the same powerful message that Jesus doesn't want to stand condemning. Jesus wants to raise us up in his grace. It's interesting that if you go back to John 3.16. Remember John 3.16 that you've memorized. For God love so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever f- believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And, and anytime I quote it you know that I've learned it RSV not NIV. So forgive me. But how many of us get 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world Through him. We have been graced. But it is also a powerful, anytime that we affirm that we have been graced, that that's a reality that God brought into our world, that is not something we can do for ourselves, but something that God has given to us. And even if we choose to respond to that grace in the waters of baptism, what goes on in baptism is not about what we've done, it's about what God is doing. Amen. So even though we have been graced in the past and it is fulfilled already in our lives, we also have to admit that we are a people who need to be gracing. Again, forgive the poor English, poor spelling, poor grammar, but it is intended to make the point. If we hear Paul's words in his prayers to the churches, grace to you, and if we take those words to heart and we let them become the reality of who we are, with the recipients of grace, where grace has made a difference in our life, then we have to be a people who live out that grace in a very powerful sort of way. He depends on us to paint the picture of grace for other people. It reminds us that we are graced, and we must testify. We must testify that we are a gracing people. There are two ways that I would like to point us as we think about gracing. First of all, it is in the language of the interaction that Jesus has with this woman here in John chapter 8. Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And then... She has probably lived her entire life with people ridiculing her. The fact that she is in probably the profession of prostitution is that she has been thrown away by everyone that she has come in contact with. Doesn't say it here. They catch her in adultery. One of the ways you catch people in adultery is you know where somebody's turning tricks and you show up there and you catch them in adultery. Jesus says, maybe for the first time in her life, neither do I condemn you. And then in a way that powerfully says, I know there's something more for your life, go and sin no more. It may well be that the whole point of someone saying, don't you remember that story about Jesus? We haven't got that one in any of these four Gospels. Let's include it here. It may not be a, the story of an adulterous woman who is forgiven. Who finds redemption through Christ. But it may well be this line. Go. Go whatever you're going to do with the rest of your life. But don't let it be about the sin that I have relieved you from today. Folks, we have to respond to the grace that's been given us by seeking the Spirit to transform who we are on a daily basis. To say, wherever we are in our walk with Christ, and again, I'm not saying that any of us live in any sort of perfection necessarily, but we are pointing in the direction of walking in Jesus' footsteps. Amen? And we need to recognize the places in our life, the places where our hearts are hard, or our love is not big enough, A place where the justice that God wants to bring into the world is not reflected in my own attitudes and actions. A place where love for the least is not part of everything we do. And so we need to hear, yes, I have redeemed you. Yes, my blood covers all of your guilt and shame. And yes, you need to go And make your life about leaving sin behind every single day. I don't know about you. But I find that as my life gets longer. And it is getting much longer these days. That I can come to places where I feel at peace about what God has transformed in me. And I'm so thankful for that. And then it seems that just with a little less attention. A little less concerted effort of saying, no, 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 I need this to be part of me. It kind of creeps back in. Satan wants it to creep back in. I don't move into condemnation over that. But I don't want it to be part of my walk forward. Because I have been graced. And I want to be gracing. Go and sin no more. The second response of gracing is powerfully taught. In Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 18, I'd invite you to read along with me. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Again, you just have to see multiple lifetimes of debt that cannot be repaid. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that had been sold... And all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. By the way, wouldn't come close to repaying the debt that he owed. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. And by the way, note the next line. Okay, I'll wait for you to pay me back. Maybe not even have interest on it, but I'm still looking for those payments. What is his reaction? He canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Let's go with two, three months wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused. And he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Isn't it interesting? Jesus brings in this, this turn in the story. Because it now becomes a story that's happening in the world. It becomes a story that the people in the story react in the way the people who heard the story would have reacted. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy? Shouldn't you give grace? On your fellow servant. Just as I had on you. In anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay all he owed. Which means that's not going to happen. And Jesus concludes, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of us unless we forgive our brother or sister from our hearts. Remember our visit to the chapel Peter Noster uh, on, on the Mount of Olives and how the Lord's Prayer is printed there in over 200 languages from around the world. Lord's Prayer is, again, a powerful way in which Jesus teaches us to come to God and to to honor Him in our prayers and to, to seek His will in our life and what we do in our prayer life. I would particularly encourage you to think about the line, forgive us our trespasses, our sins, however you choose to translate our debts. in luke's version he's much shorter our father hallowed be your name your kingdom come daily bread and forgive us our debts matthew will expand each one of those statements luke will not until he comes to this one because i believe it's the point of why jesus brings it to the prayer not that we come to jesus groveling on a day in day out basis Oh please I Please forgive me, I, I'm, I, I need, because he has given, we have been graced, amen? We pray for the forgiveness of sins because it keeps us on the tack of I wanting to be conformed into who Christ is, transformed into who Christ is. But that phrase in Luke, the only time Luke expands just the, the basic sentence forgives us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. If you look at it in its grammatical form, the emphasis is not so much on I need your forgiveness, but it is that I want you to forgive me the way I'm forgiving others. Almost as if the response of being graced is being forgiven and being forgiving. Without being forgiving has grace made its way into our hearts. Someday, grace will win the very final battle, Revelation chapter 20 and 21 describe this, this time when the final battle comes, apart, comes around and God and His grace and His love are victorious over all of hatred and all of evil and all pride and all those who stand against Him. And it's a beautiful scene. I encourage you to go and kind of read what does it look like when grace finally wins the final battle. I look forward to that day. I realize this is a bit of an aside but it seems appropriate to mention at this point. Uh, I have spent the last better part of two months I had several road trips to do and when I when I know that I've got those kind of lined out I'll I'll pick a book uh, audio book that's a little bit longer. Um, I have been and just Literally this morning, finished the last 10 minutes of uh, uh, Steve Aubrey, that's not the right word, uh, his book on D-Day. I, I didn't even write it down because it's just been so, so familiar to me. You can ask me later, I'll look on my phone. It is kind of the, the unequaled statement about all that went on in that one day, June the 6th. He also wrote a book called Citizen Soldiers and he is the the screenwriter for the miniseries called Band of Brothers. And if that puts some context, somebody can tell me why I can't remember the author's name. One of the main points that he makes. By the way, very difficult two months to everyday turn on a book that's going to tell you about carnage. But the carnage of the first wave made the way for the second wave, amen. and the second and third and fourth and fifth waves freed Europe from Hitler's tyranny, a freedom that they couldn't accomplish themselves. The author over and over again makes the point that the soldiers who were coming on the beaches were the soldiers, were the young men of democracy and freedom. And the people that they were facing were the children of tyranny and a dictatorship. And apparently at that time it was quite the question as to whether the children of freedom and democracy could ever overcome an entrenched army from tyranny. And the reason that he wrote D-Day first and couldn't quit and went on to write um, Citizen Soldiers is that he realized that we have to tell the story of a democracy that could create an army great enough. An army that came not from fear, but an army that came from freedom. And it won the day. You and I stand as soldiers of grace. It will never be the easiest way to win the battle. But it is the only way the battle will ultimately be won. When we let God's grace fill us, it will put us in places where we are vulnerable. It will put us in places where we're going to we're going to choose to be gentle rather than bring a fist. It's going to put us in places where we have to humble ourselves in ways that are really out of human character. But it is the way of the cross. Therefore, it is the way of Jesus. Therefore, it is the way of grace. We'll be, be transformed by the grace that God has given us. Or somehow are we trying to depend on fear of punishment? The text tells us it is the love that brings us to where we want to be. Amen? And it is the love that so overwhelms our hearts that causes us to be those who, having been forgiven, will forgive. Neither do I condemn you. Neither will I condemn you were Jesus' words on that day, but do we let those words be the words of our heart. Neither do I condemn you. He has done everything that could be done for you to not be under, as Chad spoke of, the tyranny of sin. He wants us to be part of the life and freedom of grace. Amen. And he has done all that he can do. So you're invited this hour, this minute, to decide that you want to respond to the grace you've received by grace given. Where will that forgiveness show up? How will you determine that I'm not going to? Lo- I'm no longer going to wallow in the. And the sin that entangles me when God wants me to run free. How will you respond? The waters of baptism are prepared this morning. If for whatever reason you have not chosen to step into that relationship of living under God's grace. We would be glad to change that today. If you're online with us, we encourage you to start the conversation. At 979 217 you can text us and you'll get a reply. If you're here today and would like your conversation to be a little more private, you're also welcome to respond in that way. The question is, have we heard the word of grace? And if we have heard the word of grace, have we begun to live into that grace? Won't you come as we stand and sing? Open our
0: eyes.